Welcome to the Radical Bureaucrat, a podcast for people who want to change institutions from the inside. I'm Sam Rosaldo, and I believe that good government matters, like, a lot. Oh, me too. I'm Abram Guerra, and I believe that complicated problems never have simple solutions. Oh, me too. If you work in a bureaucracy like we do, or if you care about bureaucracies, then we think you'll get a lot out of our podcast. The Radical Bureaucrat. I mean, this idea has the potential to really turn bureaucracies on their heads. Yeah, it does. To use one of our metaphors, it will rock the boat 360 degrees in every direction, but what? without knocking anyone out. Yeah, I'm excited. So so do you want to say what it is? or? I mean, for suspense, can we add a drum roll? You mean like like add a recording of a drum roll or like me like bang on the I table? I don't know, whatever you can come up with. Right, yeah, sure, I can do that. What we're talking about is L-O-V-E, love. What? What Mind blown. (laughs) You're so surprised, right? What does love mean in a bureaucracy? If you like what you're hearing on our podcast, leave us a review on iTunes or wherever you get your podcasts. It really does make a world of difference. And we're going to be using this book that we've both been reading for the last couple of weeks. Uh, the book is called All About Love, New Visions, and it's by Bell Hooks, um, a well-known and well-loved author. Um, we're not really going to like do a text-based like uh, paragraph-by-paragraph kind of analysis. We're just going to kind of be borrowing stuff that we've been thinking about as we've read through the book um, and sort of using it as a resource on the way. Yeah, that's right. And I'd like to take a second just to say why we're doing this. So... The seed for this idea was planted a few months ago when I made a staff member that I supervise cry. Mm, yeah, I remember that. Yeah, I text you right after it happened and I felt awful. And I was really struggling be- with the tension between accountability, quote unquote accountability, and empathy. I had basically lost patience with her and with the conversation we were having during a phone call. And I ended the call and then afterwards i just wrote her a directive in an email yeah so this is like the like ladder of discipline thing where you have to like have documentation that somebody is like not following orders or whatever yeah and without saying what it was she she knew what it was she called it out she said this i see what you're doing here um and it really hurt her feelings And it got me thinking about human relationships in the bureaucracy and how the bureaucracy can, in so many ways, actively discourage us from considering each other's humanity. Yeah, like even that like ladder of discipline concept is a like check in the bureaucracy for when people get too human and like argue with each other. Yeah. And it's like, no, no, no. We have a chain of command. Yeah. Make sure everybody follows the rules. Yeah. Like that, like that's the bureaucracy's way of coping with our humanity. But it has a very kind of dehumanizing quality to it, doesn't totally. it? Totally. It totally does. It's like you don't even have to think about it. Just follow this process. Right. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Um, so anyway, that happened. And, and honestly, it was through taping this podcast with you that I had another epiphany, which is that... I just so much value the relationship we're building through this work. Aww. Hey. And, you know, we should be so lucky as to build those types of relationships in our workplace. Like in, in, and we both work for the same bureaucracy, but, but in different offices. Mm-hmm. And it, Which it, means we never see each other, ever. We never see each other. But it makes me think about, like, you're still my colleague in a mm-hmm. sense, and we still have built this relationship in a very... Mm, 
outside the bureaucracy way, I guess. I think so. what you're trying to say is that you love me. And I, I love do. you too, Sam. Well, thank you. I do love you. <laughs> Hopefully our listeners are not completely weirded out, but we're going to get into that today. Well, that's, I mean, that's part of the thing. Like that, I, we just said, this is a radical concept. Yeah. Like it's, it's supposed to make people feel Yeah, that discomfort is what happens anytime we touch on radical issues. Yeah, it should. Uh, so love, um, let's get into it. Why, why are we talking about this? And, and what does it mean that we're choosing to discuss it? So I actually want to start off with a quote um, that Hooks uses right in the beginning of the book from Diane Ackerman. And the quote is this. She says, as a society, we are embarrassed by love. We treat it as if it were an obscenity. We reluctantly admit to it. Even saying the word makes us stumble and blush. Love is the most important thing in our lives, a passion for which we would fight for or die and yet we're reluctant to linger over its names. Without a supple vocabulary, we can't even talk or think about it directly. Yeah, I was at um, AERA, the American Educational Researcher Association, which is a humongous conference of conferences. And there was a session because it was the 50th anniversary of Pedagogy of the Oppressed, which is a book by Paulo Freire. Or sure. Freire, I don't exactly know how to yeah, pronounce it. I think you're saying it pretty well. Um, but... Uh, there was all these people on the stage who had like worked with him, mm -hmm. um, you know, back in the seventies or whatever. And one of them was saying how, um, Paulo reached this certain point in his career where every time he would get on the stage, he would talk about love mm -hmm. and that finally, like other colleagues would come up to him, the friend of Paulo Freire and be like, why is he talking about love? <laughs> is he okay? Is he sick? What's yeah. going on? And, and, uh, but no, like he had just, and I think there's a book, right? Pedagogy of Love that came out later, uh. um, which it, it, he had just realized that like love is the answer and I'm not going to be afraid of it. I'm going to commit to, to producing an ethic of love in the way that we talk about education. Yeah. Yeah. And, and, and that's why we start with Ackerman's quote because she's saying, Love is everything, and yet we won't even talk about it. Yeah. So today we're going to talk about it. All right, let's do it. Yeah. So what is love? I, I, feel, I feel the need to sing when you say what is love. <laughs> Go for it. Maybe we can... No, I, re I really shouldn't. We Maybe can I'll, edit in the song. Yeah, we can edit in the song right here. <laughs> um, so what is love? Go ahead. What, what, you you, you so, take the definition. So, uh, so in the book, she uses Scott Peck. Um, which I thought was really interesting, and I don't know if it's exactly how I would define love, but um, she says that Scott Peck defines love as the will to extend oneself for the purpose of nurturing one's own or another's spiritual growth. Right. So like many definitions, this is a little bit like opaque. Mm -hmm. So like extend oneself, meaning like leave one's comfort zone or like mm -hmm. uh, put oneself out there mm -hmm. uh, for what? for one's own spiritual growth. So I, in me loving myself would be mm -hmm. extending myself for my own spiritual growth, right? Mm -hmm. uh, and then me loving others would be extending myself for their spiritual growth. Um, and she goes on uh, in the book to kind of unpack this stuff. And I thought it was pretty interesting. Uh, I, I don't know that this matches my, matches my kind of personal idea of what love is, but wh what did you think? There's a couple parts of this that I thought she made um, really important. So one is, not just to extend oneself, but the will. So she makes right. it very clear yeah. that love, 
this is a big part of what she's saying is that love is an active it's a verb it's not a noun it's a choice it's so you can't like unintentionally love someone yeah and it's not a feeling so this this she rejects the notion that we like fall in love right Mm -hmm, like you love is something that you actually have to do um and so i i think that gives it a certain meaning and clarity that i i i accept uh yeah and i i like that notion that you have to opt in to loving somebody and you have to be very intentional about it. And just because you're smitten with somebody or crazy about them, that doesn't right. mean that you are actively loving them. Yeah, like you might be infatuated and you might, I thought it was a brilliant, she talks about this idea of cathection or cathecting. Right. Yes. And like basically like investing energy into a person or a project or a thing. And I think even that shows how that can't be love because you can cathect, you can invest feeling and energy and attachment into a project, a thing that you're working on. And you can have that sense of loss if it doesn't go well, right? That's not what love is. That's just an investment of affection or care or feelings. Um, love is this other thing. Um, You know, it's funny, like I can't really think about love in terms of my lens without kind of going back to a spiritual foundation as well. Mm -hmm. And so I think it's interesting that her, that Peck's definition of the one that she chooses here um, is about spiritual growth. And she clarifies that spiritual means the kind of alignment of all of the different parts of Mm -hmm. yourself. So the mind, the emotions, the body, the um, whatever the soul, whatever you think the different parts of a person are, um, that that's what she means by spiritual growth is the growth of the whole person. Um, but for me, love is a very charged word as somebody who for the better part of almost 20 years now has been a, a profoundly committed practitioner of a, of a religion based on this teacher in the Middle East a couple thousand years ago who happened to bring up this word love a lot. Like I can't really hear somebody give me advice about what love is mm-hmm. without going back to that sort of foundation. Mm-hmm. Um, and there's another uh, thing that it's awkward to talk about, about at work that, that is impossible <laughs> to acknowledge, right? Yep. Like it's impossible for me to like say the word Jesus without people having some, some people having the hairs on the back of their neck stand up because they're worried they're going to yeah. get yelled at or something, right? We're in New York City. Um, so. Yeah, yeah, New York City. <laughs> there's lots of churches in New York City. Are you sure? Lots of churches. We're, we're taping um, this in Harlem. There's like more churches yeah, per capita here than anywhere else. Right. Uh, uh, so yeah, I, I, I think of love in, in similar terms as an idea of commitment, an idea of extending oneself, an idea of putting another before yourself, I think is a key piece of love. Um, For me, it it really is that um, uh, denial of the self on behalf of the one loved that is sort of the essence of love. Um, So, uh, you know, I don't know, maybe we'll edit this out, maybe we won't, but Jesus says that the one uh, who lays down his life for his friends, that's Mm what love is, right? Mm-hmm. So it's so so to me it's it is that extending of oneself for others. And, and then, you know, the thing the funny thing is there isn't actually a lot of talk to my mind in, in the Bible about loving oneself. Mm-hmm. Um, it tells you to love others as you love yourself. It sort of assumes that you love yourself. Mm. Um, and that the real challenge is to love other people. Mm. But I think in modern life and in bureaucracies that that's actually the opposite. It's actually really hard to love yourself mm. and not kind of lose yourself in the work and lose yourself and your relationships and your health and your wholeness to the, the, the work and the choices that you have to make on a day to day basis. 
Yeah, I think that's right. And we are going to talk a little bit more about what love looks like in the bureaucracy. But I w- just want to round out this part about the definition. Another thing that she says is she says a couple things about what love is not. So there can there can be no love if there is not honesty, right? Mm-hmm. This dishonesty can't is is in no way a part of love, and abuse is in no way part of love. Yeah, and and that in that notion of abuse, uh, we won't get into too much uh, because she it she talks about like corporal punishment being yeah, antithetical, child, child rearing, yeah, and the need yeah. basically that any. Uh, corporal punishment of a child amounts to abuse, right? Is sort of what she argues. Yeah, but the thing is for me, and it goes back to this conversation, the ladder of discipline is like at, at almost what constitutes abuse. I mean, that's right. some of the opaqueness, right? Like for her, she talks about corporal punishment, but what's there's so many things in between that could be types of punishments that could be interpreted as abuse. Yeah. Um, I mean, I was definitely whooped as a kid. Mm-hmm. Um, but I don't think that the physic, the corporal, corporal meaning of the body, right. right, abuse, was the stuff that left the strongest marks. The stuff that left the strongest marks in my childhood was verbal, was all mm. verbal. Um, and so, yeah, what is abuse exactly, right? And And is there discipline is there discipline including discipline that is of the body that is not abusive mm-hmm. um, and that's that's a complicated thing and it's doubly complicated by a, another thing that she tries to tackle which is the idea that like parents really are the sole decision makers over how their child will be disciplined mm. um, and she kind of tries to take that on and say that well doesn't it take a village to raise a child? Mm-hmm. Like, shouldn't there be other adults involved at the very least so that children have somebody to appeal to? Which I thought was a pretty attractive uh, model or yep. argument. Um, but uh, that doesn't mean that I'm going to go and tell somebody what the right way to re- rear their children is. That right. that feels more judgmental than loving, to my yeah. mind. Yeah. And she makes a distinction between abuse and discipline and, yeah. and talks about, you know, the example of like, well, insisting that kids clean up after themselves is instilling discipline um that was one of the things i got beat over the most often. i know right how do you get a kid to clean up after themselves without you know, <laughs> engaging in some form of punishment or abuse yeah so, i mean i wonder people are probably going to ask at some point whether or not we have children whether or not we beat them so i can't wait for that conversation to happen yeah Actually, I think this is going to be a great episode to hear back from listeners on. Absolutely. Um, so you can hit us up on our social media or email address. Before we move on, actually, I, I had one more thing about the what love is not. Um, and that is, um, okay, so there's no love if there's dishonesty. And there's no love if there's abuse. Um, and y- yes, I agree. <laughs> right. However, that feels like a definition of love uh, that itself is a little bit dehumanizing Hmm. because people are deeply imperfect and make mistakes largely based on traumas that they've faced in their past. And so somewhere in love, there has to be a... uh, almost like uh, if you think about it like computer programming like an error checking algorithm like okay you know my wife and I love each other very much but we're not perfect and and we have moments where we say a thing that is hurtful that is verbally abusive Um, we have moments 
of dishonesty sure. where like, you know, I didn't tell you about that. Right. Uh, I, I withheld that. Um, and I'm, I regret withholding it because that's almost always a bad idea when you're married. Yeah. Oh, uh, God. oh boy. Tell me about it. Uh, uh, <laughs> oh, but, but when it happens, there's gotta be some kind of grace, some kind of forgiveness that yep. is a part of love. Right. And so, so I, you know, that's one thing that I've been kind of like knocking around in my head is the idea that love has to include some error checking, some garbage collection, as we would say again, in computer programming, like there's a lot of garbage that comes out in real human relationships yeah. and you've got to be able to collect that and process it and still invest in a relationship um so I, it was sort of yeah you know there I, is I, no it, it's perfect. nice for it to be absolute but but yeah. there's no such thing as perfect love at least absolutely not in this life. and i i would imagine because i think that is a point that she doesn't really make in the book but i think is a very is very apparent and I would imagine that she would say that's true and then you need to go back to loving you know you you're gonna make mistakes and you need to to like you said air check and then go back correct right. the course yeah. and go back to that verb of investing in yeah. the will to extend it for yourself and other spiritual growth all right so now we're really far it feels like from the bureaucracy we are, but we really needed to lay that groundwork uh, to define love, to talk about why it's important um, and why we're uncomfortable with it. And so she, she has this quote where she says, when I first declared my desire to work in a loving environment, friends acted as though I had truly lost my mind. <laughs> to them, love and work did not go together. But I was convinced that I would work better in an environment in a work environment shaped by an ethic of love. I wanted to throw that out there right off the bat to say Bell Hooks has thought about uh, what does it mean to love in a bureaucracy? Yeah, love in the workplace love and not in the, in the way you're thinking about. Exactly, right. So what do you think about her assertion here? Um, is it crazy to want to have a workplace or work environment where there is love? Um, or uh, is... She's not crazy. She's not crazy. In your no, opinion. she's not. But I think the reason why we're talking about this is because there are so many obstacles in our way. Okay. And so we're having the conversation to say, and where we, I hope we get to is, well, then how do we overcome those obstacles? And what does this look like? What does it look like to actively love uh, in the bureaucracy mm -hmm. uh, and I think that we're thwarted all the time and so ultimately there are contexts in which really really loving the way that we want to yeah maybe it is impossible but I think there's lots of places where we can we can love we can infuse it in there yeah um, and it's even interesting to think about the ways in which care can be exercised in, a, in an organization in a company but not love yeah. right where people can be given you know, dry cleaning and lunch for free, but they're also worked to the bone and like expected not to have a personal yeah. social life. And like the reason you can eat all you all you can eat at, at you know for all meals of the day is because they want you to be at your desk twenty four hours a day. <laughs> right. And there's so there's a difference between care and love. Um, and and I you know it's interesting to think about how we can be duped into that kind of junk food version of care yeah. where we get all these amenities but we don't really get our whole person taken care of. Yeah, and I wanted to bring it back at this point to the specific word growth, spiritual growth. 
So what does I I've been thinking about this lately. Like I want a supervisor who is deeply invested in my spiritual growth. Although now that I say that, I, I it's just growth. I want a supervisor who's invested in my in my growth, spiritual or not. Uh, I want to because I want to keep growing. I want to get better at what I do. I want and I want to be nurtured in that way, and I want to be invested in, and I don't want it to just be about accomplishing what's on my job description. Uh, and so. I guess my my question is like because who doesn't want to grow yeah i was just having a conversation with my younger brother um shout out to josh what's up man um just having a conversation with my younger brother about work and he was saying to lisa that like it doesn't really matter what kind of job i have all jobs suck Mm. and lisa was kind of like that's not a really healthy way to lisa's my wife by the Mm -hmm. way uh that's not a really healthy way to look at it like (laughs) it's kind of like defeating yourself before you ever start i think he made a really good point that like work needs to occupy a minimal amount of my brain bandwidth Mm. so that i can then have something left over to invest in things that i actually love that will actually contribute to my growth as a human or whatever um and I think there, I think there are probably a lot of people who feel that way, who feel that work, they want to get paid and make a living doing something that they can keep confined to a work week, yeah. So that then they have energy and time and money resources to be able to do the things that they want to do, right? Yeah. Um, I'm feeling my class privilege a little bit too, right? There's, so talk, so talk about that. What do you mean by that? Why is that a class privilege thing? Well, I. Th- think that I have the privilege to look for work that will fulfill me and I'm not in a position where I'm scraping by mm-hmm. just trying to find the next paycheck like living because I, I you know Maslow's hierarchy of needs like I'm right I have a place to live I have food I have clothing so I can look for like that next level whereas if I just need to take care of those basic needs, then this whole conversation is. It's a really different conversation. Yeah. Right? Yeah. Yeah. I mean that, I think that's right. So there's this great article I read a couple years ago. I, I'll try to find it and put it in the show notes, but um, about the idea of do what you love and you never have to work a day in your life right. and how much of a lie that is, how like people use that to underpay teachers and to underpay nurses, basically to underpay women, right? Anything that's women's work gets underpaid. Mm. Um, Because don't you love, don't you gather some value from being a teacher? Mm -hmm. Um, And so therefore you shouldn't have to be paid more to do it, right? Right. Um, And that that is is this like crock, it's this lie, right? Like um, I do think there is a, a kind of class privilege or maybe education privilege that's sort of in there. Um, but I think that what the world that Bell Hooks is probably imagining and certainly the world that I imagine is a world where we're, where we're not sort of forced to compete with each other for the lowest value labor in order just to put bread on the table, right? Like, and, and the, the truth is, is that we live in a society that's structured so that some people get to demand growth from their work and other people have to accept not growth from their work and have to find their growth somewhere else. 
Um, so I think we're sort of imagining a philosophical republic where like everybody wants growth, right? And I think that probably lots of people want growth. They just don't see it as something that they'll ever get at work. Mm. I think they that's why people have hobbies. They mm-hmm. invest energy into things. Um, they invest energy into playing soccer or into building model planes or sure. whatever it is that they invest and in time and energy into raising children right. because that's where their hope and and uh, and investment or extension of themselves is placed, not in their work. Yeah. I mean, I think this question of work and organizations and the ways in which they humanize or dehumanize us is a profound question that I think humanity has been wrestling with at least as far back as Marx, Mm. right? Because Marx talks about the dehumanization of labor. Um, If not much further back, I want to say that there are at least one or two things in Ecclesiastes in the Bible where he talks about work and Mm. how meaningless it feels. Um, so this is this is kind of an age-old question, and and so how how do we bring love into the bureaucracy? I think that's really the question, isn't it? Yeah, and she, you know, Hook says multiple suggestions or steps uh, and requirements that she says we've got to follow. And one of the things that she talks about is processing our wounds, and 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 wow, like. This, this is almost, when I start to think about this, how do you do this in the workplace? I think it's possible, but I also think we're generally pretty far from doing something like this. So I'm going to read another quote um, where she talks about this, this notion of lovelessness as a wound and acknowledging it. She says, we need to gather our collective courage and face that our society's lovelessness is a wound. We allow ourselves to acknowledge the pain of this wound when it pierces our flesh and we feel in the depths of our soul a profound anguish of spirit. We come face to face with the possibility of conversion, of having a change of heart. In this way, recognition of the wound is a blessing because we are able to tend it, to care for the soul in ways that make us ready to receive the love that is promised. So when I think about this quote, I'm thinking about having a really honest conversation, a very vulnerable conversation mm-hmm. about what does it mean that we've been, you know, if we're going to convert our workplace into a loving environment to convert our bureaucratic workplace at that, we have to acknowledge the ways in which we've been hurt by not having love here, by feeling like I've been abused here or people have not been invested in my growth, or we've been dishonest with each other, or I've been dishonest with myself. Yeah, here, in this office. In this office. And I could see that happening. Uh, I can envision it, Mm -hmm. but I also think, wow. I mean, that would take a lot of trust building to get to that point. It seems far, very far away. Yeah. What would be the steps to get there? Your instincts are right. It takes a long time. It takes a lot of conversations. It takes a lot of trust building and, and honesty and processing when feelings are hurt. Um, and you know, books have been written, trainings are available. Like it's, it's, it's a lot of work. It's a lot of work to get to that point where people can really be, um, truly honest in in the workplace. Yeah, and I, I think there's another part of it too, um, which is 
probably comes back to norms. Uh, and, and that's about opening up the space for people to show their humanity, to bring in their personal lives, their personal interests. And it doesn't always have to be, and we're going to come back to this, but it doesn't always have to be about outcomes and outputs. Mm-hmm. And so I thought of two recent examples. One is my cousins, I'm going to, uh, log roll for my cousins for a second, but they have a film coming out called Nosa Chape about the Brazilian soccer team that two years ago, uh, 71 people from the team and associated with the team died in a plane crash. Mm-hmm. And it's a documentary and, and the team that, uh, got wiped out, they, there's these beautiful scenes of them playing Pagoji together, which is this Brazilian music where uh, it's kind of everybody's riffing together and uh, like Brazilian jazz. Yeah, yeah, it's yeah, I suppose we should play some. It's, it's just everybody's on an instrument or singing and it's beautiful and this and you see the soccer team spending time together in this way mm. and and the love is palpable right and the humanity yeah. is palpable and we know instinctively and we know from research that engaging in those types of activities helps the team when it comes time to work it right. builds trust right right and and as much as we've learned these lessons that that's good we still also have this instinct especially in the bureaucracy mm-hmm. that that's not time on task right that, that yeah that we're not somehow getting towards our goals and if we are going to do it at all it needs to be very functional right we need to get in spend our hour on team building and get out <laughs> right it can't be spontaneous like that uh and i had another conversation with a, a colleague this week that also made me think about it where he for 45 minutes we sat down and he told me a very personal story about this amazing breakthrough that he had had and these um this this spiritual breakthrough that he had had and i'm sitting there and i and i have the little voice in the back of my head thinking like should i be doing this but because i've got you know i'm supposed to be on task and moving the goals um but i'm also at that moment, I felt a little bit like, okay, I'm doing my radical bureaucrat thing because I'm, <laughs> I'm going to sit here and I'm going to listen. Mm-hmm. And I also know that this is going to move the work ultimately. Right. Yeah. Uh-huh. You know, like, and, and, and that little thing that we're doing together one-on-one is a, is a seed for something that I hope could grow a little bit. Yeah. And I give him credit because he came to me and was like, I want to tell you this story. And, and I think that he's the type of person that does that. Uh, and I'm not going to name him, but, um, he does that with his colleagues it, as when he sees the opening because he knows it's a good thing and he knows that that bond that we're creating somehow is just good for the universe. Yeah, you know, I look at the people in my life that I that are sort of leaders or mentors that I think I sort of am modeling myself after. And they're often the ones that would take the time to listen to a story that would take the time to tell a story, to explain themselves, Mm -hmm. that would take the time to just kind of be together, Mm -hmm. to whether it was sort of watching a sporting event or, you know, watching the Super Bowl together or something or, um, or what, or whatever, whatever it is. I I think about both in 
my sort of uh, private life and the sort of church life that I'm involved in, as well as professionally in the professional realm, the people who I've respected the most and been willing to put the most of myself forward for are people who modeled kind of what you're talking about, mm. who were who were willing to kind of set aside the demands of today to do the work of basically love, of listening, of of offering healing or space for healing, like like what you're describing. Mm-hmm. Um, so I think that there's very much a kind of leadership lesson there that like uh, part of what a leader does, an effective leader does, is create those spaces, mm-hmm. which feels perhaps antithetical to out- outcomes or outputs or, or uh, efficiency, mm-hmm. um, but is incredibly important for effectiveness. So, so yeah, like creating that space for healing in many ways has a lot to do uh, and I think I said it a minute ago with with like honesty and can I really be honest? Can I really be myself yep. right in front of you without fearing, you know, reprisal or something like that? Um, and, you know, it's, it's interesting because the book talks about honesty and like th- it's interesting to think about like can we are is the way that we're doing the work really honest and really making space for yeah. people to be really honest? Yeah. Um, or are we being asked to gloss over uh, what we feel is the truth? Are we be, are we asking others to do the same? Yeah, I really think we are, <laughs> <laughs> and I think that it's very hard to resist. And I want to get into that, but I want to talk. I want to give uh, a few quotes from Hooks that really I think bring home what we mean by honesty and why it matters so much. So the first one, I love this because I was in a in a um, a meeting uh, like last month and we did a one-on-one partner share and I think one of the questions that we had to ask each other was like when are you dishonest and this guy said to me um, I don't think I'm ever dishonest I think I always represent myself and then he kind of admitted well sometimes you know if I if I don't want to say something I'll just hold it in right and I was like oh well you know, that might not be so honest of you. Right. And book says exactly that. She says she's talking about men specifically, but she's, she was talking about a, a, a relationship, but she says his favorite way of lying was withholding. Right. In other words, withholding is lying. Right. We think of it primarily as what, what, what I would call a, a sin of commission. You commit the sin of lying, but there's also omission right there there is omission is a type of error or sin that people commit uh and and yeah withholding is a kind of dishonesty by omission yeah and i think that's something we do a lot in in the workplace in the speak for yourself sam well (laughs) um i want to get into some specifics around this but i want to give a few more quotes so about the cost she says when you when when you lie you present a false self and and that again she's talking about men we're going to talk about that but she says the terrible price they pay to maintain power over us is the loss of their capacity to give and receive love so when you withhold when you lie you do it in order to keep your power yep and Sounds you very lose familiar. the most important thing the ability to give and receive love 
Yeah. yeah. And this is kind of a fundamental argument of the book. And I think it comes out very early. Um, but, uh, you know, I had, I had sort of a few underlines that I, in the back of my mind, I'm trying to get to. Mm-hmm. And one of them is this one, that, that an awakening to love can happen only as we let go of our obsession with power and domination. Right. Right. That there is a kind of a mutually exclusive binary of power and domination, power over others and love and, and humanization. Uh, and, and I might even say like justice or freedom, right? Like power over others comes at the price of all those other things because you can't have power over others if you're just one of them you can only have influence and you can only have Mm. power together um but we live in a world that is structured around power over others that is structured around hierarchy right and this is how it's maintained yeah and in another place she calls that a major moral dilemma right you know you you have you have a choice to make and so much of what we're trying to accomplish in these bureaucracies guy how many times have we said bureaucracy in this podcast <laughs> but uh is to achieve more power i want to ask you abram do you struggle with this like is there is there a way that you think about how you feel like either you've be you've, you've worked on it and you've become more honest um kind of a positive example or a way in which you feel that your honesty is, that you've been withholding um at times are you asking if i'm lying to you right now i'm talking about at work (laughs) (laughs) um i don't know it's tough i i mean i've talked with lisa about this quite a bit um Mm. about this about the issue of honesty um and i feel that i have a very sort of what i would call like a sensitive conscience for honesty i feel like i feel extremely betrayed when i feel like i've been lied to Mm. um i feel like i I, I try to hold myself to a pretty high standard of honesty. And yet at the same time, I, uh, I, I am big into strategy, <laughs> like which many times strategy is about deception. It's about uh, portraying that you have more expertise or force than you, than you really do, right? Mm-hmm. It's about tricking the enemy into seeing something that's not there, right? That's what strategy ultimately is. Um, and so, how does that work? How do I have the kind of moral flexibility? Uh, and you know, Lisa calls me on this every now and again, that like, are you being honest right mm. now? Um, and yet have feel like, no, I'm a very honest, honesty is very important to me as a person. It's yeah. a very important value. Right. Um, and yeah, it's something that I've kind of, kind of wrestled with or struggled with. Um, I don't know that I've gotten better or worse at it. I've certainly, I'm certainly good at identifying it at sort of seeing that like, okay, if I'm gonna be really honest in this situation, I'm gonna have to you know, think about what the implications are of that honesty and be ready to accept whatever those implications are. Um, otherwise, you know, I'm just being reckless, right? And like, um, I don't know, sometimes I may be honest about what I think, but that doesn't mean that I'm right about what I think. Right. right. So like, I, I don't know, I think it's complicated. Um, but, but yeah, it's definitely something that I've wrestled with. I try really hard to be honest and transparent. I think transparency, honesty is an important value to me, but, um, 
You know, it's it's difficult. Sometimes people don't want to hear all the honesty that you have right. to give, right? Sometimes. Well, that's what I was. One thing that I was starting to think about is is feedback, uh-huh. and that's a place. And knowing where people stand, knowing where you stand with others, and and letting other people know where they stand with you. Yeah. And of course, one thing they say about feedback is that it's most effective when people ask for it, but <laughs> people don't always ask for feedback. But I. I do think that one thing that can be helpful is building structures in for providing feedback to say, we're going to, we're going to talk about like, we're yeah. going to have this quarterly review or semi-annual or, or annual, whatever it is. And, you know, we're going to give each other feedback and say what we think, uh, each other are doing well and where we think that each other can improve. And when you don't have that, uh, I think some withholding can happen. Yeah, I think that's right. I think also the element that you were talking about a second ago is less complicated for me. So you were talking about how we're sort of socialized to avoid conflict, basically. I wasn't really socialized that way. Mm. I was socialized to engage in conflict. That was kind of how I was brought up. Maybe in your household, but in other places you've probably been socialized. Oh, sure. Yeah. yeah. I I feel the social pressure mm-hmm. to like, you know, don't rock the boat. Sit down. Right, rocking right, the boat. Right. right. right? Um there's actually along. this there's actually another quote in here that that I thought was really good in this respect. She says uh, on page 58 of the book, she says, since many of us were shamed in childhood, either in our families of origin or in school settings, a learned pattern of going along with the pro- uh, the program, a learned pattern of going along with the program and not making a fuss is the course of action we most frequently choose as a way to avoid conflict. So, I actually got in trouble in school like a lot, like Mm-hmm. daily mm-hmm. for not going along with the program. Mm. Um, I wish I would have saved all of the referral slips mm. so that I could have like a wallpaper. Mm. I think it was that many. Like I could paper the wall in my mm-hmm. house with the number of referrals to the principal's office that included the word disruptive on them. Um, and I think that's very much for the last few years something that I've learned to lean into because it's something that people really need. Because when I'm feeling a kind of way about this conversation and we're not being honest with ourselves, Hmm. so are half of the people at the table. Mm -hmm. But we're all socialized into this acceptance and going along with. Mm -hmm. And I can't tell you how many people have come up to me after a meeting and have said, I'm so glad that you said that because I felt the exact same way. And I feel like we need to talk about that in this project. And I think to myself, I feel a little bit like, well, why didn't you say something? But I think the the truth of it is that it's very difficult. It's very difficult to paint a target on your forehead by raising your hand and saying, like, isn't this nonsense? Why are we doing this? Yeah, I think that actually, and we've talked about this, that our new chancellor, Richard Cardanza, has been a great model. And sometimes, and and that takes, that takes um, stepping outside the box. Yeah, right. and and having a fresh and stepping outside that box box means that somebody is going to check you, right? Yeah, yeah, but it also takes a certain type of intelligence, uh, sure, to do that. And um, you know, he's done it. The other day, he's like, "I don't even know why we have screen schools anyway." <laughs> and it was and like people were like, <gasps> "Yeah, right." Like he's like, and then he Com- and then afterwards, competition, and then afterwards he said. I didn't think it was that controversial. They're right. public schools. Like, why are we barring yeah. certain students from admission? I want to bring it back to the withholding piece. And I, I want to talk about some of the ways in which Hooks points out that these are very gendered expectations. Um, 
this this quote that she where she's talking about men and withholding and honest honesty actually struck me as like quote unquote good bureaucrat behavior um so i'm just gonna read the quote she says male inability and or refusal to honestly express feelings is often talked about as a positive masculine virtue women should learn to accept rather than a learned habit of behavior that creates emotional isolation and alienation so again this she's talking about this idea that um we're taught that it's a good thing when men don't express their feelings and that women should be more like that and you know when when a woman cries it's like oh they're they're being unprofessional they're bringing emotion into the workplace and let alone when a man would cry right um and so let's not have workplaces where people are show their emotions uh you know keep it keep it inside and keep it moving um we don't have to process all our feelings here this is what we're supposed to do in a bureaucracy so i uh yeah, that kind of brings us back to your story earlier, doesn't it? Like, yeah. like this, the way that the system is set up and the procedures that you're supposed to go through as a manager when you feel like somebody is not performing up to their expectations, those are like designed to like remove all sentimentality and emotion yeah. from the situation, yeah. right? Yeah. I remember I'm thinking of another supervisor I once had when I was teaching. Uh, I was teaching in the school and I think it was my second or third year there. And I'd been working for a very, very tough principal, very smart woman, but tough, tough as nails. And at the beginning of the year, she spoke and probably started to tear up talking about how hard the year was going to be because she was feeling very, very um, upset because one of the teachers who she really leaned on as a pillar of support and as a confidant had left the school and that that was just a big loss for her. And I was so grateful. I was so glad she did that. And I told her publicly and I told her privately, like, that was good. Like, I, I want to see you do more of that. Like that, I feel so much more connected. And, and yet again, like that's not the, I don't, feel like our norms in any way support that type of behavior uh i thought that was a courageous move and and i never saw her do something like that again actually despite my mm. encouragement so i wonder if other people came up to her and said i wonder if other people came up to her and said like that's that, not a good look like that made me uncomfortable i doubt it and in that setting i don't think they would Perhaps well, anyhow, another setting. The, that that um, moment, right, mm -hmm. crying in front of an audience when you're the leader, especially if you're a woman, that's a very risky moment. Yeah. Right. You're risking everybody like not respecting you or something like that. You know, the, the one emotion you're not supposed to show is is upset and crying. Mm -hmm. But there are other ways in which you can emote uh, that are more acceptable. And so as I'm thinking about our listeners who might be, you know, we're not all about to go get up in front of a group and cry, but, but there are ways that whenever we share of ourselves. Right. And I do think that that behavior is also actively discouraged or at least 
not in any way endorsed. Um, but every time I share something personal about myself, people receive it so well. Mm-hmm. Like here's a here's a, a a little secret. Anyone out there who has babies, talk about your babies when you're in public. <laughs> that's <laughs> like, the key. Yeah, that's the key. Oh man, I mean, the when I came to District 79, I spoke at a large PD professional development about three months after I came on board. And my kid had just been born, my first child. And um, and I was kind of rehearsing at home for Naima. And she said to me, say something about the baby. And so we worked it into my comments. It's a smart woman, Naima. Yeah. And you know what happened when I said something about my baby? Oh. Yeah. Uh-huh. And you know what else has happened? For the last 10 years, people who are at that PD, they don't remember it. But they ask me how my kids are. Yep. You know, it always, how are you, how's the babies? Like they're 10, See, yeah, he's actually almost 10 years old, yeah. but he's. He doesn't like being called baby. Yeah. He's reached that age. But what a connection, you know? Yeah. And it's, it's a great, like so many of these things are not just about love and humanity and altruism. They're about doing the work better. Right. Well, it's, it's both things, right? Love, humanity, altruism are about doing the work better, right? right? Doing the work as a non-human is not better. <laughs> yeah. Um, although, I don't know, maybe we'll invent robots that can do a better job than me at the kind of work I do. Um, it seems very suspect. It seems to me... Selling yourself short like again, the thing, Yeah. <laughs> I'm, just, I'm just ready to welcome my extended vacation at the hands of robot overlords. Um, I, I think that the things that are quintessentially human are the things that uh you know some kind of an algorithm policy bureaucracy will will almost never be able to recreate at scale and so like why not if what we want is a system that values the humanity of everyone why not start acting more human more of right. the time right? right like i don't know am i crazy would it be bedlam Everybody would just be crying in the conference room all day long. Like, I don't know. I, I, I do think like whenever I really lean in and imagine what the world is like when we act more human and less robotic, you know, yeah. So then we have some people who quit and become artists. That sounds great to me. Yeah. It sounds great to me that we have more artists. Like, awesome. Yeah. Like, I don't, I don't know. Like, it just seems so short-sighted. To, to want it to be more efficient and to push out those things that make us what we are, human. Yeah. No, we have some people who quit and become artists. Fine. We have other people, though, who are like stay because of how affirmed they are in right. this space and who do the work better, who bring that passion to the work, uh, They who bring their whole selves to it. And it's like, oh, but we spent two hours this week talking about our feelings. Yeah, but we spent 38 other hours or 48 or however many people wanted to right. doing the work with that extra oomph and the mm-hmm. extra creativity and just getting it done. Yeah, I think a big part of what you're saying is the is a leadership commitment. You have to yeah. have a boss that's going to say what you just said, right? Yeah. That like, yes, I know some of you are going to feel like X, Y, Z. But the other 38 hours, this is what it's going to look like. And I think it's worth it. This is what I'm committed to. There's a leadership element there. 
leaders. We yeah. need leaders who are going to commit to rehumanizing their offices, their teams. Yeah. There's that. And there's the intermediate steps, right? Because every one of us can be more human in our interactions. Just like in the story I told with the colleague who came to me and said, I, I want to tell you about this. And, and then I was able to sit and listen. Um, we can do that in our one-on-ones. We can do that in our indirect leadership. Uh, we can do it. There's lots of opportunities to be more human. Um, ideally, yeah, it, it becomes a norm that exists throughout the workplace. But in between, we all know those colleagues who, who bring right. their humanity into the workplace. So we can all be leaders. We don't have to wait around for a leader to ding, ding, ding. point the way. <laughs> yeah. So we've talked a lot about what love is not we've talked a lot about what it should be in an ideal world and, and even a few intermediate steps but we haven't really talked about how we would get there uh writ large and it's not easy <laughs> there's no magic bullet there's not <laughs> sorry everybody <laughs> uh if that's what you're waiting for but hooks does she has a chapter called the love ethic in which she does talk about some of the necessary steps. And I don't even want to say steps because they're not steps that you can just check off on a list. Um, but they're kind of requisite pieces of, of a workplace and a, and a society that, that loves. Yeah. I mean, it takes, it took us a second to recognize it as like a three point plan. Right. And, and I don't know that she would say that that's what it is, but they do strike me as like three key work streams, three key buckets that she kind of lays out. And so she says that it's uh, that we do this by choosing to work with individuals we admire and respect. Mm -hmm. That's one. By committing to give our all to relationships, that's two. And by embracing a global vision wherein we see our lives and our fate as intimately connected to those of everyone else on the planet. That's that's three. So mm -hmm. sort of three, three point plan or three, three point platform, uh, three planks in the platform. Um, number one, choose to work with individuals who you admire and respect. Mm -hmm. Now, I wonder for a little bit if that's like a class privilege thing mm -hmm. or not. Like not everybody gets to choose mm -hmm. their work. Um, although you might argue that everybody makes that choice, whether they make it feeling like they have no choice or not. Um, what do you think about that as like a concrete thing to look at? How do you how do you operationalize love in the bureaucracy through the lens of choosing who you work with? I think it's something I think about my friend is Shindy. Okay. And tell me. Uh Shindy's someone who I just have so much love and respect for. And when she looks for jobs, she looks for people that she wants to work with. And, mm -hmm. we, and she always talks about it in those terms. Like, that's someone I really want to work with. Mm -hmm. I think so. I think it's something that you can naturally do. It's just a matter of priorities. Mm. It, it sort of leads into the second point, right? The second point is about giving our all to relationships. Yep. And this this is this one for me really stood out because it was kind of the question that I asked a second ago. What do we give our all to in our work? Is it relationships or is it something else? What do you what do you think the bureaucracy asks us to give our all to? 
Yeah, metrics. Metrics. Yeah, we define metrics. If you're if you're smart, you define a metric that you think you can achieve. <laughs> so yeah. so we give our all to success. Right. We give our all to winning. Right. And we give our all to competing. Um, we give our all to like outcomes or outputs, whatever is measured. If you want people to care about something, you got to measure it, right? Um, all right. And finally, embracing a global vision. And, and this, this part very much reminded me of a favorite uh, quote from Martin Luther King, that we're all in an inescapable network of mutuality, which, which she, I think, quotes later in the book. Um, embracing a global vision that says that we're all connected, that we're connected to every other person on the planet. What do we do instead of that in bureaucracies? What kind of vision do we adopt that is not a global vision where we're all connected? Hmm. One thing that I think that we do is we set goals. Mm -hmm. And there's been some literature about the drawbacks, the way in which goal setting can make us myopic. Mm -hmm. We get so focused on the goal, as we talked about, it's the metrics, mm -hmm. it's the winning. And then the point of the work becomes the goal right and we're not taught we're not thinking about uh unintended consequences mm -hmm. we're not thinking about how we could actually get closer to our broader vision by ditching the goal that we had and coming mm -hmm. up with something different so i think there's there's an element of that kind of attachment to goals yeah i think another piece of the puzzle here with this one is is really checking our competitive impulses mm -hmm. I think workplaces can be very competitive places and you know some of that is rightfully so you've got to advocate for yourself because the system isn't set up to advocate for you um, but you've got to also think about championing other people right you've got to think about success in a less zero-sum way yeah and think about how do we all succeed how do I succeed in ways that create spotlights for other people, right? How do I bring into the room the people who are affected by this decision? Either explicitly, like actually bring them into the meeting or bring their voice in, access their voice, access their ideas yep. um, and bring them into these spaces where decisions are being made for their benefit, but without them. Um, and, and in some ways, what that implies is a much more humble view of the work, of the work of public policy, leadership, gov governing, uh, a view that it is not about power over, but it is about power with and power for um, the people. Uh, and and how, do, how do you bring that into the conversation in the conference room where you're making decisions together? Um, because... Yeah, like, like we should be on the hook, not just for whether we achieved our metrics or whatever. We should be on the hook for the impact of the decisions that we make. And that means looking way out to the, to the very distal connections uh, and how our work impacts on them. The, the whole theory of collective impact, mm -hmm. I think, is intended to achieve what you're talking about and perhaps uh, a little bit about what this point or, or maybe a lot that the hooks is making about having a global vision 
and and when you ask what we what do we do that's not this it's it's when we create silos between hmm. teams agencies uh organizations and we get territorial yep we yeah. create turf yeah we create boundaries to yeah. fight over yeah yep we yeah. decide to do things because they send a message that this is our turf yeah and the, the other thing I love about this point that just goes beyond the bureaucracy is it's a very much an anti-racist point, you know. It's, how, how so? Well, uh, you know, recently there's been video of a, a meeting on the Upper West Side where parents got angry about a, an integration plan, school mm -hmm. integration plan, right? Um, but if our top priority is not just our own fate but the fate of everyone on the planet we don't have these types of angry meetings where we're upset about the little bit of privilege that our child is going to lose mm -hmm. uh we our excitement over doing something that is just for everyone in this city is greater than our um anger at, at losing something and and in fact we we see that as essential to our own happiness and essential mm. to our own um, values. Like we're really living our values at that point. Yeah. Um, so. uh, at, yeah. At, at some point we have to see that our life, liberty and pursuit of happiness is not something that can be achieved individualistically. It's only something that can be achieved together with our neighbors. And I think there's a lot of effort over the last few centuries to like undermine that point, to say, no, it's a dog eat dog world and you're gonna compete and win. Um, and don't worry about what happens to everybody else. Worry about your own effort Worry about rising by your own merits. Worry about your own rags to riches story. A lot of effort has gone into selling us on this lie that we get ahead based on nothing other than our own effort. When in reality, the research shows that it's pretty much luck. It's pretty much random chance where we're born, who our parents are, what their educational attainment is. Mm -hmm. It really has nothing to do with our effort. And yet we've been sold this bill of goods that like it's our effort that does it. And, and in order to get to what you're describing, we have to get past that, that individualistic view of life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness and into a collective view where my happiness, my pursuit of happiness, my liberty, uh, my life is tied up with my neighbor's happiness and my neighbor's liberty and my neighbor's life. I think it might be a good opportunity to head toward closing. Yes. And I think that... I wanted to to just there's this one passage that just kind of knocked me out um, and I wanted to come to it. So here's here I am doing it. Um, so uh, Bell Hooks writes, this is page 89 in the book. She says, talking to a university audience recently, I expressed my faith in the power of white people to speak out against racism, challenging and changing prejudice emphatically stating that I definitely believe we can all change our minds and our actions. I stress that this faith was not rooted in a utopian longing, but rather that I believed this because of our nation's history, 
of the many individuals who have offered their lives in the service of justice and freedom. When challenged by folks who claimed that these individuals were exceptions, I agreed. But I then talked about the necessity of changing our thinking so that we see ourselves as being like the one who does change rather than among the among who refuse to change. What made these individuals exceptional was not that they were any smarter or kinder than their neighbors, but that they were willing to live the truth of their values. Wow. This, I feel like, is what I've been trying to say for mm. some time. Look, people, uh, people jump on Twitter after Charlottesville. And, you know, Charlottesville, a woman is murdered by vehicle, right? right? And, and because of a rally. An explicitly white supremacist taking our country back rally. People on Twitter burst forth with, this is not America. This is not us. Mm-hmm. And my immediate reaction to that is, this is absolutely America. Right. This is the America that we have been trying to tell you about for centuries. Right. And you have not been listening. And it takes somebody dying like this for people to, to sort of wake up. The thing about that, though, is that it's not exactly true that America is a complicated idea. America is both this place of horrific violence of horrific injustice, but it is also the place where Emma Lazarus could write, bring me your tired, your poor, your huddled masses yearning to be free. Mm -hmm. Yes, America is a place where we can put to death a hundred million Native Americans, where we could lynch tens of thousands of, of former slaves. It is also a place where people can stand at a pulpit and, you know, Abraham Lincoln, who's not, in my mind, a great person, but Abraham Lincoln can stand at a pulpit and say, if we have to give back in blood every drop of blood taken by the lash, and if we have to pay back in war every dollar that we've earned from unrequited labor, then so be it. Mm-hmm. America is both of those things. I feel like this is such a difficult thing because I don't really have another place this is it, this is where I'm from, this is who I am. I'm an American, whether I wanna be or not. Um, and it's so hard for me to process both of those realities. And I feel like what, what uh, the author has done here in this little passage is she's really untangled that knot for me and said like, yes, America has lots of problems, but I believe in the power of America to do better because America also has lots of examples of people who have fought and died to do better. And we just have to see ourselves as those exceptions and not as among the among who does nothing, who goes along with. That was a lot. That was dope. (laughs) Hey, everyone, this is Abram. And we just wanted to quickly interrupt the episode with a real time update about how the podcast process is going. Yeah. And so this is Sam and Abram, check it out. I met with a young colleague from another city agency and she told me, I've been listening to your podcast and I realized I'm a radical in denial. A radical in denial. That sounds like a good episode title. Okay, so what do you think she meant? Well, she works in the criminal legal system and she said that she'd been trying to do everything that the system asks of her, but she wasn't being honest with herself 
or with others about her real aspirations for affecting change. Mm. And then this is the key. She also realized that by denying herself her radicalness, she was in essence propping up the existing system rather than pushing for real change. Mm, Yeah, I could see that. And so then did she feel some kind of way about that realization? Oh, she was energized. I mean, I'm telling you, she walked into my office and just started talking as soon as she sat down. It was a lot like um, Patrick's reaction, which we described in episode one of this season. She had so many ideas she couldn't stop. Wow, that's so cool. Um, Yeah, that's like exactly why we're doing this whole crazy project, isn't it? Yeah, I think so. And that's why we're planning for season two. And everybody out there, that's why we need your help. Putting on a podcast is a lot of work. And to make this sustainable, we're going to need to pay some folks to do some of that work with us. Oh, we just hit them with the ask. Okay, so check it out. There's editing the podcast. And then we have like a whole website and a newsletter. We've got to write show notes. And then we've got to re-edit the podcast when we realize that something is different. And there's a little bit more editing to do right before we post each episode. But we have so many dreams for the podcast. And more than that, we have so many dreams for building and expanding the Radical Bureaucrat community. Hashtag Team RB. Yes, that's what I'm talking about. So here's what we've done. (laughs) We set up a PayPal button on our website at RadicalBureaucrat.com to launch our first ever fundraising effort. This will enable us to put out a second season to reach more people with even better and more content. Again, please go to RadicalBureaucrat.com and hit the PayPal button. We'd also really like to hear from you whether or not you can donate on PayPal. So what do you think we should do for future episodes? How has the podcast been resonating with you? And what else can we do to spread the word about this community and this podcast? We'd love to get these suggestions by email at info at RadicalBureaucrat.com or as comments on the blog or on Twitter. We appreciate you. Yes, so much. Okay, so now let's get back to the show. Well, I guess we should probably end as we end every time and let us know if you think this is corny or is this something we should keep because we're reaching the end of a season uh, and we're trying to figure out what, if anything, we take into a second season if such a thing exists. Mm -hmm. But, Sam, (laughs) would you like to help us to end like a good radical and tell us one thing that you've learned today? What's sitting with me right now is just thinking about relationships Mm. and how can I be purposeful and intentional about expressing love in my work relationships. In an entirely appropriate way. Of course. As soon as I said that, I think everybody who was listening was like, watch it, Sam. But here we go. Oh, kind of see, like making yeah, uh, discomfort. All of this work and Let's we're make right a joke. back where we started. Yeah. <sighs> well, see, I was going to let it stay there, but, but you just had to make light. Sorry. Um, you know, other people were thinking it. That's what of course. I do. Yeah. Um, yeah. So for me, I actually, it's funny. I spent the majority of 2017 really focused on the idea of hope. Where does hope come from? How do we get hope? How do we generate hope in times that feel a little bit hopeless? Mm -hmm. That that gives you a picture of what my 2017 felt like, at least early 2017. I don't think it was just you. Yeah, it might have been a lot of people. Um, This year, actually, I was having a good conversation with a friend, um, and I was really hot and bothered about something, and she made a comment that stopped me in my tracks. She said, you know, I just want people to learn and be better um, because I just want them to grow because I love them. 
I just love, and in particular, she was saying black people. I love black people. And because I love black people, I want other people to learn how to love black people. Mm. Um, and so I'm going to like be patient and help people to learn because that's, that's what my goal is. I love, and it stopped me in my tracks because here I am this like devout church going person who like has a real hard time loving people. I'm all truth and no grace. I'm all like, like this is wrong and you're wrong and, and not enough love and patience. And so I decided that this year what I was going to do was spend the year thinking about love. And you didn't know about this when you were nominating this book. No, I didn't even um, know about it until you just said it. But uh, I feel like this has really helped me to see both things, to see the centrality of love uh, in the sort of world that I'm imagining that's better than the thing we have. But it also gives me such great hope. Like there is so much hope in love and that we really can be this exception. We really can build this exception together. Um, and that's a really beautiful thing to sort of hope for. Um, so that's sort of the thing that I'm staying with in the end. Nice. And let's also end by being good bureaucrats. The views expressed here are our personal opinions and do not reflect the official or unofficial position of any government agency, policy, party, leader, or really anyone besides the two of us, and maybe you, but maybe not. This content has not been sponsored or approved by anyone and was mostly just made because we wanted an opportunity to talk about things that mattered to everyone, whether they realize it or not. Thank you all for listening. Thanks for listening, everyone.